want to um, highlight throughout this month of September ways that we can follow Jesus together. And last week, uh, just before the message, you heard Pete talk about what it would look like or what it has looked like for him to be part of a discipling friendship, walking with one other person, reading the scriptures, praying together, and asking of God's word, what, what does this mean for me? Um, so there are cards in your pews that, again, this week and next week, if you uh, want to be part of something like that, you have someone in mind that you want to initiate a discipling friendship with, fill that out and let us know so that we can follow up with you. If you know you want to do it, but you're not sure who to do it with, fill out a card and let us know, and we'll try to pair you up. If you gave us cards last week, expect to hear from us in the next couple days um, if you're looking for partners. Um, so that's one way that we can step into following Jesus together. But today, I actually wanted to share uh, another space and way that we um, follow Jesus together, and that's through being part of a small group. And I've asked Jesse Blake to come up and share just for a few minutes about some of her experiences being part of several small groups at JCC. Good morning. So yeah, Dave asked me to share a bit about my experience with small group and the ways that it has impacted just my life and my faith. Um, and so I did some reflecting on it and I realized I've been coming to JCC as an adult. It's probably been about nine years now. Um, and in that time, I think I've been a part of four or five different small groups. Some of them lasted a few years, some were only a few months, but they all had an impact on my faith journey. And in thinking about it, I kind of pulled out three different themes that they all have um, in common. So uh, the first one is I have always valued small groups as a place where you can really dive deeply and ask questions, share struggles and challenges of your faith. Because it's a place beyond Sunday morning where you can talk with people and discuss and push back, hold one another accountable. Um, and I'm someone who likes to ask a lot of questions and I'm not very satisfied with surface level answers. And so often sitting and listening to a sermon on Sunday morning or even being a part of the adult Sunday school class, while it's wonderful and it gives me lots of things to think about, it doesn't provide that space to actually dialogue with other people and to ask the questions and be like, but what about? And can you explain? Um, and so small group has always been that place for me. Um, I remember my very first small group I joined was at the Freidenbergs, um, and it was a really great group of people, and we would meet each week, we would read scripture together, and share our thoughts, and ask questions, and it actually produced a lot of debates, which I loved, um, and it was a group of people that liked debating, so it was really fun, and we would debate, and I would always leave wanting to know more, and it would just encourage me to dig into things more, and come back the next week with, okay, well, I was thinking about this during the week, and what about... Um, and I also was a part of a small group that met at the Coons for a couple years, and I feel like there was almost never a week that went by that I didn't walk away with either an amazing book recommendation, article, podcast, something related to the topic that I was asking questions about or exploring. I walked away with amazing resources from other people to just continue to dive deeply into things. Another important role besides being a space where you can ask questions and explore together is just that sense of community and belonging. Um, it can be a place where you can show up fully yourself and be loved. There is a mutual giving and receiving when you're a part of a small group. You can share hard things and be supported. And also it can be a time during a busy week where you just intentionally stop and pray for one another. There was a small group during the pandemic um, that I met with over Zoom that I think modeled this really well. And it was a time where we would 
take time beyond our study to spend quite a big chunk of time just sharing about our lives and then right then and there praying for one another. And it just was such a good feeling to not only be able to pray right then, but know that throughout the week there were people praying over the situations in my life as I was praying for them. And when it's not over Zoom, being able to walk into someone else's house each week and be welcomed like a member of the family is an amazing feeling. There's definitely been seasons of my life where my own home didn't feel like a place of belonging. And so each week coming to the Coons house and feeling like I belonged there and experiencing that love and joy, it was a refuge. Um, and it got me through some difficult seasons. You also can just enjoy doing life together as a small group. It's so much fun. Meals and hikes and dance parties. That's my favorite part. Um, games, campfires, all the fun things about just doing life together and getting to know people better. And I've formed some wonderful friendships because of small groups. And the final thing that I feel like it's uh, had an impact on me is in communal faith practices. So I've experienced a lot of different ways of studying scripture or living out my faith because I've seen it modeled by people in my small group or we've tried it together. So I first learned how to do Lectio Divina, that, that form of studying scripture in a small group. Um, I began the practice of having a daily office. Those of you who went through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality a couple years ago might remember that. That was through small group. And I've learned from others how they study scripture or make space for prayer or seek the will of God um, when making decisions. And I've seen that modeled because of the relationships I had with people in my small group. So you can learn from others new ways of incorporating your faith in your daily life. Um, so I've just, yeah, cherished the community that I found. And it's absolutely helped deepen my faith and mature it. And so if you are not already a member of a small group, I would really encourage you to find one to get plugged into or even start one of your own because it's an amazing way to be able to follow Jesus in community. Thank you, Jesse. And thanks for being part of our, our small group for several years and blessing us with your life and your presence. Um, there should be in front of you, and I, I failed to check this morning, there should be also cards, not just about those discipling friendships, but small group cards. Do those exist? I see Alyssa holding one up. So if that's something you'd like to do, if you're not currently part of a small group, um, you could fill one of those cards out and drop it in the offering plate or hand it to me uh, after the service. Again, you could say, I don't know where to start. Just help me find a group. You could say, hey, I might be interested in hosting a group in my home, but I'm not quite a facilitator of the, the content and the discussion. You could say, I don't want to host it, but I'm willing to help lead it. Or you could just say, I want to be a participant. Um, but we would love to hear from you. Tell us kind of where you live and what days might work best for you. And we'll try to take that data into account and plug you in. Um, so that's small groups. Next week, we're going to hear about um, what it looks like to serve as part of the JCC community and how that also is an invitation into koinonia, into fellowship and uh, discipleship with one another. So Carrie Causey is going to share next Sunday. I want to dive right into our passage this morning in 1 John. And if you would open there with me, we're looking at the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. So 1 John is near the back of your Bible, just before Revelation. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And if we quickly kind of survey chapter 1, which we've looked at the past two weeks, 
We hear John proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hear John proclaiming that Jesus came from, from a heavenly reality, that the living word of God, full of God's gift and presence and light and life, into an earthly human body, right? So that we might know him, we might be in fellowship with him, so that that heavenly reality might transform our human reality in a, in a radical sort of way. Last week, he talked about because this, this heavenly word, this living word of, of God in the form of Jesus Christ came into our world, right? His perfect light pushes back the darkness, but it also exposes our darkness and our sin. And so we heard in last week's passage kind of elements of both good news and bad news. You can think back to last week. We wrestled with the bad news that we have this history in, in who we are as human beings of hiding from sin, hiding from our failure, hiding from our brokenness, or, or eventually even excusing those sorts of things in our lives so that, that we remain hidden and outside of the light and, and the revealing presence of God. The good news that we heard proclaimed at the end of chapter 1, though, is that in the person of Jesus Christ, in God's own Son, we are invited to leave that darkness and to step back into the light. And that when we do that, Jesus comes to our aid. Jesus is present to us in a powerful way so that we might remain, John says, we might abide in the light of God's presence. So with that, as kind of a backdrop, I want us to look at chapter 2 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 in our time together. Well, let me pray for us that we might hear, and not just hear, but respond to the word of God. Lord Jesus, you are a revealing light in ways that we desperately need. Jesus, you are a revealing light in ways that honestly can be uncomfortable and at times we don't desire. But Lord, I pray that through the hearing of your word today and through the assurance of who you are and what you're like and what it means to know you, that we would, we would step into your presence, that we would trust you, even to, to stand in your radiant brightness and know that you love us. Lord, would the words of my mouth as I preach, would the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The entire cosmos is the Greek word there. A defining feature, John says, of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the reason he writes and witnesses and lives as an apostle of Jesus Christ. John says, is because Jesus has the power 
to deliver us from sin. I write to you so that you will not sin. When we hear that word sin, and Pete did a nice job of, of illustrating this this morning, maybe our first impulse is to think about sin as a list of bad behaviors in our lives, the, the actions or impulses or words that come out of our mouth that we feel shame about. And, and yes, that in, 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 in a sense is an expression of, of sin's work in our life. But I think the scripture speaks less about external behaviors as sin And it wants to dig down deeper to the the core, to the source, to the root of why those things issue forth from our lives. John writes, so that we will not sin. And by sin, I think he has in mind this separation, this isolation, this hiding from the light in the darkness of our own creation. And he knows that that is an alienating place and way to live. His desire in writing is that we might step out of that isolation, step out of that separation of relationship, that disconnection of relationship with God, back into the power of God's light. And so John says, I'm writing to you in the hopes that that you will choose, you will desire along with me to leave sin behind. Because in God... Who, who is light, there is no darkness at all. So we, we can't have this sort of double life where we say we want to follow God, but we remain in hiding. And so hopefully when we hear verse 1 here, that lands with us as good news. We agree with John's message. Yes, I want to leave sin behind. I don't want to sin. But I think... If we're honest, most of us have have desired that, have wanted that in our lives. But we've also experienced this mixed bag in terms of our behavior and life that follows. What happens when we desire to leave sin behind, but we still find sin as part of what we do, part of who we are? What do we do when we attempt to follow Jesus, but we find sin still with us? How do we deal with that sense of failure? If you've been in small groups like the one Jesse described, you may have been together with other other brothers and sisters and seen this pattern of, of the same sinful habits or responses or things coming up in our lives again and again and again. And we're not sure what to do with that. Do we just try harder not to sin? Do we just kind of up the ante of the shame that we feel about sin in hopes that that the shame will make the sin go away? Well, in verse 2, end of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, John wants to give us instructions. He says, I want you to leave sin behind. I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, and he knows we will sin, when we sin, John has good news for us. Not the news that we need to try harder, not the news that we need to to pour on the shame, but gospel news about what God is like and how he responds to us in that moment. John says, we don't have a magic bullet to make sin disappear. 
But what we have is a merciful God who has given us his son, Jesus, to provide two really important things when we sin. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Jesus is both our advocate when we sin, and Jesus also provides our atonement when we sin. And I want to briefly try to unpack what both of those things mean. Verse 1, John says, when we're following Jesus, but we're still finding ourselves dealing with sin, God sends Jesus to be our advocate before him. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's important that I think we get straight what this is and is not expressing about who Jesus is. The word advocate here is, is actually the Greek word parakletos, which uh, you also see in John's gospel to describe the, the work of the Holy Spirit, a, a comforter, an encourager, a, a coming alongside kind of presence, the paraclete. But it, it's drawn, that word is drawn from the Greco-Roman world, and it was often employed in a, in a legal setting, in a courtroom setting. Commentator Gary Burge says, a parakletos would be a person who, so, so you would find yourself accused of wrongdoing. You would come before the court. But a parakletos would be called to come and stand beside you, to be an aide, to be a counselor to you in that moment of accusation. And they wouldn't so much explain away what you had done, but by their own credibility, their own status, they would come alongside you and be with you in that accusation and seek mercy before the court on your behalf. A parakletos is someone who stands beside. So I think what, what John is expressing here is that he writes so that we would leave sin behind, but that when we find ourselves sinning, we have to know that Jesus Christ is the kind of person who comes and stands beside us in our sin when we feel the weight of that accusation and shame. In chapter 1, he was pleading with us that we would step into the light and be seen by God. And now he assures us that when we have the courage to do that, and all of that that's revealed when we stand before the presence of God, John says, you are not alone. Jesus Christ has been sent to be your advocate, the one who stands with you. Sometimes I think we get kind of a, a funny and I think fuzzy picture about Jesus standing between us and God the Father in a courtroom like he's some kind of defense attorney. Like he's somehow trying to prove our case before God the Father and like, like God's arguing with himself about whether or, not, whether or not we are guilty of sin. And frankly, I think that's kind of a weird picture. I think it's, it's one that maybe sort of gets into our imaginations, but I don't think it's particularly helpful. Because what verse 2 actually says is that Jesus comes to stand with us. He's sent by God to stand with us in that revealing, illuminating light of his presence as an act of love for us. God is not divided in the way he sees us. He knows we are in sin. He knows that darkness has a hold over us. But he has sent Jesus to draw us out of the darkness so that we would stand in the light of his presence. And as we stand there, 
Not only does Jesus stand with us and advocate for us, verse 2 says Jesus also becomes our hilasmos in Greek, our atoning sacrifice for sin. I don't think Jesus looks upon us and, and disagrees or tries to find a way to explain away our guilt. Jesus recognizes where we stand. But he desires to love us and to help us. And so he becomes, John says, our atoning sacrifice, which is language drawn right out of the Old Testament, right? In the the worship of God's people at the temple, on numerous occasions, they would bring this particular kind of sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice was given in order to cleanse them, to remove from them the condemnation of sin and guilt. One of the the sort of most pronounced ways that happened was annually on the Day of Atonement. The the, The blood of a goat would be sacrificed and sprinkled inside the holiest place in the temple, upon the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And this was a hilasmos. It was an atoning sacrifice that God himself supplied out of love for his people so that they would be assured that their sin and their guilt and their, their failings, even as they attempt to follow him, that those things would be cleansed, that God would show mercy and love to them as they remained in covenant with him. That atoning sacrifice is a message from God that his mercy is greater than our sin. And this was given, right, so that God's people would continue to come and be in fellowship with him. It was given to make sure that relationship stayed intact. right? Because the essence of sin is a broken relationship with God. The reverse of that is restored fellowship with him. And that's what this atoning sacrifice does. But John tells us here that as followers of Jesus, when we confess our sin, when we step into the light, it's not the sacrificial blood of a goat or an animal. It's it's the blood of God's own person. The blood of the, the human but heavenly Jesus given for us that cleanses us from sin. That is an assurance of God's mercy and love that is greater than the power of darkness. And so God, in his great love for us, has supplied to us Jesus, the righteous one, to be our advocate, to stand with us when we are accused and ashamed and would rather hide. But as he stands with us, he covers over us. He cleanses us. He pours out his own life as a sacrifice for us and for our sin. And John says, for the sin of the entire cosmos, Jesus has come. So sin, I think, John says, is defeated by the love of God for us, while the light of God surrounds us. That's how you deal with sin. You move into the light, and that takes courage, and that takes trust, But as you do that, the love and the cleansing and the mercy of God surround us and transform us. That's what we do when we sin, John says. And I think his point is not that God is settling some kind of cosmic scorecard with himself, but rather this is good news because it says God is radically invested. He's personally invested in making a way 
for sinners like you and I to stand in his presence, to be in the light. Jesus is our advocate who comes beside us. He is our atoning sacrifice. So that when we sin, and John says you will sin, we don't dwell on our failure, we don't dwell on how pervasive sin is, but rather we, we dwell on how pervasive, how comprehensive the love and the mercy of our God is in Jesus Christ. Right? That's what transforms us when we are trapped in sin. God has come to the aid of sinners. Not just to fix up our behaviors, but to restore our connection, restore our union with his love for us in Jesus Christ. So John says, as we step out of the darkness, we come to live in the light. We come to live in the assurance that Jesus stands with us and advocates for us and cleanses us. Then John says, we can enter into a kind of relationship where we begin to hear God's voice. We begin to know what God is like. And so in verses 3 through 6, John goes on to explain what that next step, as we begin to leave sin behind, how do we begin to know God and to love God? Let me read these verses. He says, we have come to know him, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There's a lot there in those four verses. But I think John is sort of working with the question, how do you know when you know? How do you know when you know? That's a question Maybe we often ask when someone's falling in love, right? How do you know when you know you found the right one? Usually, if, if someone is in the midst of a romantic relationship and they ask that question, how do you know when you know of another person who's more experienced or who's gone through that? Usually, the, the, the answer that comes back is not a, a list of boxes to check, you know, cognitive things to believe. Well, can you tell me this, this, and this are present in your relationship? Then you know. I mean, they, they may have some practical wisdom. But love, you know that you know you're in love partly when you have a certain set of beliefs about another person. But love is also accompanied by a change in your desires for another person. It accompanies a change in behaviors. Right? People that are in love with another human being, we often see this sort of comprehensive transformation in their life that we can't fully pin, pinpoint to this or this or this. Right? Love is a transforming kind of knowledge. It covers all of who we are, what we believe, what we desire, how we act. And I think we run into similar territory when we're talking about the knowledge of God. How do you know that you know God? Particularly, how do you know that you know God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? John asks. John says, knowledge of God 
happens in our minds. It, it accompanies a certain set of beliefs. He's pretty clear about that through this letter. But he's also clear that knowledge of God must transform our desires. It has to transform our wills. It has to eventually transform our behaviors. John says, we know that we have come to know him, verse 3, when we are keeping his commands, when we desire to obey his words, when we find his love, John says, growing out of the overflow of our hearts. Through obedience and through love, we, we find ourselves being changed from the inside out. So that the conclusion, verse 6, knowing God means that whoever claims to be in Jesus must actually live as Jesus did. In other words, John's saying spiritual knowledge has to translate into real life. It's not just what we talk about. In his best-selling book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes in the, the introduction, he, he shares an illustration that he actually borrows from another theologian. But Packer, sa Packer says, picture a group of friends who have a, a wonderful home that sits on the top of a hill overlooking a roadway on which travelers go by below. And this group of friends love to sit on their balcony and watch the people go by. And over, over years of, of practicing this, they become really skilled at detecting where those travelers are probably coming from. They get really skilled at, at detecting their different kinds of strides and the things that they've packed with them for the journey. And they can even speculate with a high degree of accuracy about where these travelers are going and what, what challenges they will face on the road ahead of them. They have all this knowledge, and they enjoy talking about it and exchanging it with one another as they watch. But J.I. Packer says, no matter how accurate their knowledge becomes, it always remains theoretical. It's always the knowledge of a spectator looking out. And he says, compare that with the kind of knowledge required for the travelers they're watching on the road. Right, all the, the theological jargon up there in the balcony has to be intensely practical for them. Right, they have to know not just where they happen to be. They have to know which way they are to go and how they're going to make it there. They need a kind of knowledge that will help them make decisions and take actions accordingly. And Packer concludes, the Christian life requires not the knowledge of a balconeer, not the knowledge of a spectator. To follow Jesus, we have to have the knowledge of a traveler. And he goes on to say, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. A little knowledge of God in relationship with him, what he's like, how you follow him, is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. So how much of our energy, how much of our time, how much of our Christian life is spent spectating up in the balcony, gathering information about, about what God is like from a comfortable distance, learning what are good behaviors, what are bad behaviors, learning beautiful theological jargon about God. 
none of which is, is bad, but, but Packer says it's useless until it's the knowledge of a traveler. Until it's employed walking the road together, actually following Jesus. I think John is saying to us, that is the way of Christian life, Christian knowledge. That is the way of discipleship. If you look through these verses, he describes hearing Jesus' words, learning how to put them into practice, and growing in love as we do that. That's discipleship. And as we do that, he knows we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to make some wrong turns. We're going to make some mistakes. But, but then he brings us back to the beginning of this chapter, and he says, remember that Jesus Christ remains your advocate. He remains your atoning sacrifice so that you would try to follow him into life together, walking as his disciple. Yes, the life of a traveler is far more difficult and challenging than sitting up on the balcony, but it's actually far more exhilarating. It actually takes us somewhere. It leads us deeper into the love of God for us through the person of Jesus. Lastly, I think it's important as we think about what it looks like to be a traveler, what it means to obey the words of Jesus and to hear them and to be in relationship with them, that we, we are warned not to turn this into a kind of legalism. The way to know and obey Jesus' commands, I don't think, is to draft the longest list we can find and see if we can check all the boxes off and then beat ourselves up when we realize that there are still a number of places we need to grow. Right? That, that kind of externalism is probably the surest fire way to kill whatever love and passion you have for God and to burn yourself out. John says here in verse 5, the one who knows God is the one who is listening to his voice, is the one who is growing in love, and then that love translates into obedience. So that a disciple has to pay attention to their heart as well as their actions. Dallas Willard, I think, has put this in a really simple but helpful way. And the priority, the order here matters. He says, discipleship is being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. Being with Jesus so that we might learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. If you start at the end of that sentence, you're going to fail. Right? If you and I try to live like Jesus without spending time in his presence, without having our desires and our hearts transformed. We won't last very long on the road as travelers. Right? Willard says you could take the Sermon of the Mount as a starting point, and you could, you could work out that discipleship meant acting, into, acting in conformity with everything described there in Jesus' sermon. Trying harder not to lust, trying harder to be merciful, trying harder to love your enemies all of which Jesus desires to, to bring about in our lives. But if the emphasis is on external behavior, soon find we are attempting, we are attempting the impossible. Right? To act like Jesus, we have to first be with Jesus. We have to be formed by Jesus. Willard says it's in 
who we are in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our dispositions, in our choices, in the inner life that leads to the expression in our outer life and what we do. Jesus invites us to know him there. To reshape our desires so that we might live as Jesus lives, John says. And I think Jesus models that in the three years he spends with his disciples. Right? They're learning. They're being with him. They're learning from him so that they can live like him. But it takes time. And Jesus remains that paraclete, that one who stands beside us as we go. So here are two questions that I would send you out with this week. And these are actually printed on those cards that you got when you came in. It has the passage of scripture on the front, on the back side. It has two, two questions. They're a little more expanded on the card. But if you're meeting together with one other person in that kind of discipling way, if you are meeting with someone in your family maybe at home, two questions to think about. How do you respond to sin? What do you do when you find yourself in sin? Try to, to actually identify a recent concrete example. And how does what John says in verses 1 and 2, how does that good news actually change maybe the way you respond to yourself and respond to God with that sin? That's number one. Number two, how have you experienced knowing God? What would it look like to grow in the kind of knowledge that John describes here in verses 3 to 6? Talk about that with someone, and they can, they can help you be part of that growth. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are one who stands before us, who stands with us, who covers us with his own blood so that we might live in the light and love of the triune God. May we have the courage to say yes to that invitation. May we have the humility to acknowledge where we need help. May you use this body, this family, to bless us on that journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.